Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm doing the regular intro, but this is not a regular dispatch. Um, I am Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink. I am joined, of course, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine. Michael Moynihan, had, he literally did have other projects going on this week and couldn't be with us today. And we're sad about that fact we do yeah, wish moderately he was here. i yeah. mean you, you've seen moynihan in the morning i it's not really yeah something you want to experience on a yeah. regular basis yeah and this is this is one of our um unusual morning recordings but um we are excited to be here today and we do have a special guest with us uh a mr ajit pai am i pronouncing the last name correctly yeah you nailed it good i'm i'm good at that i never get that <laughs> no, sort of thing not wrong. good at that that's true you got this i know wrong. he's he's actually the chairman of the fcc and i suppose customarily i would refer to you as mr chairman and i, I probably ought to do that but i'm going to break that rule if that's fine with you because i think we're friends Ajit. i prefer the honorable but that's whatever we're <laughs> that's, that, that's fine massive is that what you prefer really it's unacceptable i don't know why we can't get past this owner 60 this seconds like, in all right <laughs> it's like uh, uh what is his name draymond green from uh, from golden state has been going on and on and in his feud with uh, mark cuban um, about various things, but wait, we're, wait, we're not going to go. go. No, what, what's, you wanna, the, uh, what's the feud? Oh, no, no. Draymond, Draymond Green is upset. Basketball player. He yeah, is yeah, a yeah. defensive player of the year. Sure. I don't think he won like an MVP, but he's been blamed for having lost one of those three championship runs. At any rate, Draymond is a basketball player who has been critical of the fact that in the NBA, they use this dangerous word. It's loaded with historical connotation and it injures people. It makes them sad. It's the O word owner because oh, people like Mark man. Cuban own teams and the players well they don't own players they own the teams but right. he's been critical and they've been having a back and forth and there's some additional background I believe that stems from criticism of some other owner in another league yeah, but in either case I mean Cowboys the boys thing who the, had that owner was an yeah, actual jackass it's it's, case, it's yeah. absurd and ridiculous it's actually oddly connected to just these corridors of speech protections that people keep insisting on creating. These various protected classes have things that they can say that other people aren't allowed to say. And the fact that it just keeps spidering out and creating all of these new various corridors of speech that you're just not allowed to traverse is a really bad thing. I, I just don't see, I understand the instinct, the impulse to try to, to make the world safe for everyone to, as actually Van Jones has said in the past, like pave over the jungle for people so that things can be safe. Um, but there's something pretty, pretty pernicious about the instinct. Um, I don't think that by, by trying to create a world in which we are almost forcefully unwilling to acknowledge the actual intent behind the things that people are saying, um, that we're actually doing something good. We're, we're not taking a principled stand when we do that. It is a septic compromise like you are introducing something potentially really, really nasty into the into the body politic, the world where every single thing that you say, you're afraid to actually say out loud, not because you might be misunderstood, but because someone might hear you. 
Like that's terrifying. You know, and this you would, don't have to imagine it. Like we live in that world. Already. This would be such a natural segue into the FCC's minority ownership rules and, huh. and, and regulations. So we should definitely not do that. <laughs> <laughs> because knowing Camille, that's it. We'll just soak up the entire time. No, we won't. We won't. <laughs> and that's it's it's racist for you to assume that that's the only thing I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, as 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 all of you listeners know, because you're weird stalkers, I have a deep background in telecommunications. So I'm I'm actually happy to be chatting with you today, Ajit. And I, I'm I think you also are announcing some things and we should perhaps start with the news that you are making. Sure. Uh, so I'm proposing to my uh, fellow commissioners at the FCC uh, to return to the bipartisan consensus on how to think about the Internet. And so instead of putting uh, the government in control of how it operates and how it's managed, uh, we're going to return to the light touch framework that was established during the Clinton administration, uh, one that served the Internet economy well through the Bush administration in the first six years of the Obama administration. And uh, we'll be voting on uh, this order uh, on December 14th at the FCC's monthly meeting. So light touch is so what what are you getting rid of uh, that sounds 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 like uh euphemistically talking about getting rid of something that happened in the last two years oh, and i'd like for you to describe it in the most hysterical language possible <laughs> like, think about think about the scary headline that will be written at gizmodo by uh, an 18 year old who knows very little about how the world works i'm i'm, I'm demonstrating my my feelings uh, about this matter. And the reality is that I suspect there's probably a lot of consensus about this in the room. So we'll do our best to pay play devil's advocate and be fair. But I did just take a shot there and I apologize. <laughs> everyone. No apologies necessary. Uh, so essentially, we are uh, returning to uh, the original classification of the Internet. So for many, many years, starting with the commercialization of the Internet in the 1990s, all the way until 2015, uh, we thought of Internet access as what's called an information service. And as boring as the phrase is, it actually had significant import. It meant that the FCC would not micromanage how it developed, how it operated. Uh, we would uh, take a We'll let the market develop and then take targeted action if necessary to protect uh, consumers. Uh, in 2015, that changed. Uh, we switched to calling it a telecommunications service, essentially treating every internet service provider in the country, from the big ones all the way down to the mom and pop fixed wireless providers in Montana, as anti-competitive monopolists who would be regulated under 1934 uh, rules that were developed for Ma Bell, uh, the old telephone monopoly. And so we are simply returning that classification back to the information service one that uh, started under President Clinton. And uh, additionally, we are uh, getting rid of some of the regulations uh, that were adopted under that uh, so-called Title II common carrier classification in terms of uh, the, the various rules that were adopted back in 2015. So what um, give us a tangible sense of what are things that either were already be, regulations that were already happening under this uh, classification or ones that could or were in the pipeline, at least until you, uh, you got in and how they would uh, impact people's experiences or impact uh, the market in a way that you would think is negative? To me, the most pernicious one was something that the FCC adopted called the general conduct standard. And under this, uh, the FCC didn't specify what conduct was exactly prohibited. They said, we'll take a look at any practice by any internet service provider. We'll decide if it is violative of any number of different uh, things, such as uh, free expression online or the like, and uh, we might take unspecified action. So just to, to be clear, it. the FCC had zero uh, authority to discuss or consider the content of free speech online before. 
2015. This the, opened the door yeah. to the FCC caring about whether Camille's dropping f bombs uh, <laughs> or or whether you're you're uh, you're giving a space to uh, people who are cheering on Islamic terrorists or something like that. Well, certainly, I think Camille was, was safe and it would be safe, <laughs> I would hope. But what wasn't safe, however, uh, and this was indicated by my predecessor's comments when he was asked, "Well, how is this internet conduct standard going to be applied?" He literally said, "We don't know. We'll have to see where things go." And in the subsequent months, what happened was the FCC initiated an investigation into free data offerings by wireless companies. So if T-Mobile, for instance, said, you know what, we'll give you, uh, you, know, you can watch as much video as you want, exempt from any data limits that might be on your plan. The FCC said, no, you know what, that free data offering is something that could violate this internet conduct standard. We're going to investigate it. And they initiated investigations into several other uh, free data offerings. And that's the kind of thing that you know, the last time I checked, consumers seem to like free uh, the offerings from their uh, service providers. And that's the kind of thing that the FCC was starting to meddle in. And that's one of the things that we are getting rid of is that internet conduct standard that essentially gave bureaucrats a free reign to you know, second guess, I think, a lot of pro-consumer, uh, pro-competitive offerings. Well, let's let's try to take this from the standpoint of sort of separating the access portion of the conversation and the content portion of the conversation. Right. Because I think for a lot of people, the they hear about the FCC and, and we should actually talk about some of the news um, that the FCC has been involved in throughout the first year of the Trump administration. There were yeah. the privacy guidelines that right. were done away with at the very beginning of the year, at least some rules that, as I believe, had not yet gone into effect. So this Correct. is, again, on the on the content side. Um, we had um, actually the president who has sent out a couple of tweets. This is your boss. So I'm I'm not necessarily asking you to speak ill of him, but I won't stop you if you wanted to. <laughs> um, but he has suggested on some occasions that some people are saying or a lot of people are saying maybe it was many people, whatever the phrase is. I think it generally just means that he is saying that there ought to be equal time for example. Um, so again, another content related thing um, that networks ought to be given equal time to both sides because he felt he was being treated unfairly by network television comedians. Um, so with respect to the content side, uh, with respect to treating content on the Internet, both equally and making certain that it is sufficiently pure, um, that people's information is being protected by the ISPs who are collecting it and by various other people who are collecting it online. Could we talk a little bit about how the, the rules that are being introduced or proposed at, at any rate are affecting that and what your own thinking is about the way that the FCC should actually be shepherding content on the Internet when it comes to both the privacy of users and they're giving their data to other people and when it comes to the things that they're actually consuming online. So that last factor is pretty easy for me. I come to the table as a firm believer in the First Amendment, and I think the digital uh, era I, has only enhanced the potential for free speech and free expression. And to me, at least the Internet is one of the greatest platforms I think we've ever seen in history, to be honest, uh, for allowing people who in a previous age might only find uh, their views expressed in a letter to the editor or if they happen to get onto a TV station for an interview. Uh, it's given them a platform to be able to speak without that intermediary. And that's a great thing. And so that's why the FCC doesn't get involved in deciding what kind of content goes on the Internet, you know, who is going to be allowed to speak and all the, all the rest. 
In terms of privacy, uh, Congress and the president made a decision earlier this year to rescind uh, some of the FCC's privacy regulations that were adopted last year. And this and was like right before the last administration went out, I believe like in December of it, last year. Yeah. yeah, late last year. And in early this year, uh, the, the current Congress had decided to rescind those rules. And so uh, that's why I think that's one of the questions that we are confronting is, well, what to do about privacy? And mm-hmm. I've long said that previous to these Title II common carrier regulations, the privacy practices of every online player, whether it was an edge provider uh, like Google or Facebook, an internet service provider like Verizon or Comcast, uh, the FTC applied a consistent privacy framework to all those the players. FTC. Federal Trade Commission, yes. yes. Uh, by classifying uh, ISPs, however, as common carriers, uh, the FCC, uh, my agency, created a void. And the reason is because the FTC, under the law, cannot regulate common carriers. And so that's why uh, late last year, the FCC adopted uh, very onerous regulations for ISPs in terms of privacy. So you had two different agencies adopting two different sets of rules for uh, digital players uh, in the online economy. What what was onerous about those rules from your standpoint? So a variety of things. First and foremost, I think it didn't reflect the basic consumer expectation. Uh, Consumers have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Mm -hmm. And so if their information is sensitive, as the FTC has long believed, uh, they want to have an opt-in approach. If their information is less sensitive, they're more comfortable sharing it, an opt-out approach, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, the FCC essentially just jettisoned all of that. It ignored the fact that basic consumer expectation. And it also said that regardless of the fact that the 85% of internet traffic is encrypted, it's the HTTPS, mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless, we are going to treat it as if the ISPs had uniquely uh, pervasive insight and, and in I what think, consumers were doing. And to make it accessible, like the way it's generally talked about is my browsing history, like the preferred, exactly. the preferred sites that I visit on a regular basis, what I'm searching for on Google, in some way, shape or form, the person I buy my internet connection from has that information. And they might do something with that information, like say, for example, sell it to marketers in, in the, you know, the nicest, most generous way, sell it to marketers so that they can advertise things to me that I'm interested in. Or to put it in a more nefarious way, they get all of my naughty pornography habits and they're selling access to that information. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it could be both things, right? But in either case, the you're suggesting that before these rules were introduced, there was a void that ISPs could have been doing this thing, which it's interesting to ask whether or not they had been doing it. Um, And even today, there's still a void. Effectively, those rules never went into force. It has always been the case that ISPs could technically sell that information um, had they, well, no, had currently they, been, they cannot, they, yeah. they can't now. No, they can't because okay. even, uh, because currently they are titled to, because of the FTC. Uh, yes, right. Exactly. So uh, once we remove that title to classification, uh, the FTC will once again have comprehensive jurisdiction over both ISPs and uh, online content providers. And Got so it. They'll apply that similar framework to everybody. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Cause I didn't realize that that was part of it. So, I mean, before the rules were adopted, were there restrictions then as well? But those would have come from the FTC? Exactly. Okay. Yes, the Federal Trade Commission would uh, would and did apply them consistently to everybody okay. in, the, in, the, in the online space. And were there violations of those norms? Is there What was the reason for, for reaching for a stricter standard from the FCC standpoint? Uh, honestly, I mean, it was just a power grab. I think the agency didn't really do a reasoned analysis of what it was uh, that uh, internet service providers were doing that would justify those particular regulations. It didn't do, I don't think, at least an intellectually honest 
honest assessment of how the internet operates. I mean, just the mere fact, for example, that every time if you're on your computer, you see HTTPS, that means your ISP can only see your domain name. They can't see the particular pages that you're on. Yeah, but and it, also, could, it could matter. The domain name might matter. Like if it's, if it's you right. know, hotmoms.com or something, which right. I don't know that that's a thing. We're not no, advertising for certainly that. Certainly not. And I'm going to find out if it's a thing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but please keep talking. Uh, so in addition Put to that. volume down, please. Right. That's why I asked. And if you think about how a lot of people use the internet, uh, for example, if you're surfing on your smartphone at home, you're probably using Wi-Fi. So you're, uh, you're on your home. It's not a thing, by the way. <laughs> Go ahead. So you're on your home. A network, but then as you're driving to work, you might be on your cellular network, which might be a different provider. When you get to work or go to your ne- coffee shop near your office, you're probably on a third network. And so the way you use a number of different internet service providers over the course of the day. So mm-hmm. no one of them uh, most likely would have pervasive insight into what you're doing uh, on the internet. And so the simple point I've made is simply one, just uniform expectations of privacy that consumers expect that whoever has control of their information, whether it's an ISP or an online edge provider, they should tr- protect that information if it's sensitive. And so that's one of the things we're returning to the Federal Trade Commission. It would be the, the comprehensive uh, regulation of everybody who holds online consumers' information. Now, the reason that uh, Boing Boing hates you um, is the two-word phrase, uh, which is loaded and uh, and um, and I think misleading, uh, net neutrality, mm. um, and the which you're against. Um, uh, you described it memorably for reason uh, in an interview, and I'm going to botch it, so I probably won't even try to. Oh, to I, do I remember it. it. Uh, a, can you can you render it? Uh, back then, I think I called it a solution that won't work for uh, to address a problem that, that doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. Yes, very good. Um, so, uh, but the. the Surely you understand the motivation for this, and this affects the title uh, to conversation and everything else, which is that people have a genuine anxiety that the freedom that they have known on the Internet is potentially imperiled, even if it's not now, even if the problem doesn't exist right Mm -hmm. now. We don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now. We don't. I mean, my God, a lot of things didn't exist 10 years ago that exist now and, and exert a lot of control. Um, so people are worried that a small number of powerful uh, 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 companies are going to start privileging some content or privileging some other businesses and uh, and kind of discriminating against others. Right. Um is that a, is that a problem? Is is that is that something to worry about in an era that we have? I mean, what is it like four companies that everyone particularly is is obsessing about right now? It's all in the social media. It's Facebook and Google, I guess Apple and and and, and fill in the blank on the fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there are amalgamations of power that that uh, have a, a disproportionate influence there. So. Uh, do they not have a point to be concerned about? And what is your are you concerned about that kind of uh, accumulation of power among uh, uh, tech companies here? I completely understand that concern. And I would have two responses, one uh, drawing from the past and one about the future with respect to the past. Prior to the imposition of these rules in 2015, we had a free and open internet. We were not living in some digital dystopia in which that kind of uh, anti-consumer behavior happened. There was no market failure, in other words, for the government uh, to solve. Now, going forward, the question then is, what should the regulations be? Now, uh, as you said, there could be uh, some kind of uh, anti-competitive conduct by one or uh, a couple players. And to me, at least, the question is, how do you want to address that? Do you want to have preemptive regulation based on rules that were generated in the Great Depression to regulate this dynamic space? Or do you want to take targeted action against the bad apples as they pop up? And to me, at least, the targeted action is the better approach for a couple different reasons. Number one, 
Preemptive regulation comes at significant cost. Treating every single internet service provider uh, as a monopolist, uh, any competitive monopolist that has to be regulated with common carrier regulation is a pretty, that's a sledgehammer uh, kind of tool. And, and so that has significant impacts. And we've seen some of those impacts in terms of less investment in broadband networks going forward. Uh, but secondly, I think it also obscures the fact that we want to preserve uh, a vibrant open internet with more competition. And so the extent that you impose these heavy-handed regulations, ironically enough, you might be cementing in the, the very lack of competition as you see it uh, that you want to address. And so my argument has been, let's introduce more competition into the marketplace in order to solve that problem. And we've been doing that by approving more satellite companies, getting more spectrum out there for wireless companies, incentivizing more smaller, smaller fiber providers in cities like Detroit to be able to install infrastructure. That is the way to solve that problem, not preemptively saying, you know, we are going to impose these rules uh, on everybody, regardless of whether there is an actual harm right now. And you said before 2015, there, there weren't really violations of this standard. And the right. standard we're talking about here, this is primarily a conversation about access. Right. Um, so it's whether you're using your, inter your, your cell phone to get to websites using the internet that way, or using your cable internet provider at home, which oftentimes you only have one of those. Um, the question is whether or not they're prioritizing some traffic versus other traffic, or maybe even just blocking you from getting to certain services, say right. services that they don't make uh, a profit off of your using. In general, I think it's true that there wasn't a lot of that happening before, but there were, I mean, even back in 2015, like AT&T was throttling bandwidth on its unlimited data plan. So they're mm -hmm. sending, selling you an unlimited data plan, but once you get above, say, 25 megabytes, you've, you've downloaded a couple of songs. Um, they start to actually scale back the rate of speed with which you can access the internet. And there's been a fair amount of this throttling going on. And I think part of what a number of people who are concerned about net neutrality regulations want is, one, they want to know that they can access all of the things at essentially the same rate, that there isn't any prioritization going on, which is in a weird thing to want, because from a technical standpoint, there's always some kind of prioritization going on. But that's a separate point. But there is increasing concern, I think, especially as people get much more powerful mobile devices to have their wireless connection also not be throttled in the way that AT&T right. was doing. And we still see um, a fair number of sort of data caps, although they'll talk about them a bit more explicitly now. Right. But I believe like AT&T was fined for some of that throttling back in 2015. So there's there's at least some potential issue here because there are, in many cases, only a few carriers that you can actually go to to get some of these services. So Wireless in New York City, you can get one of, say, several, T-Mobile, Sprint, AT&T, Verizon. They're most places. They right. all have their own networks for the most part. Everybody else is leasing stuff from those guys. Right. But when it comes to Internet service in New York, if you want cable, you talk to Optimum. Or if you want fiber, you talk to Verizon Fios. Those are your only two options. And in many places, you've got fewer than those two um, in a few places, you've got more, say, if Google Fiber is in your neighborhood or something. Right. Um, in places like that, like net neutrality could potentially be uh, a, a, a real issue for people. So I, I wanted to be sure to place it in that frame. I am similarly skeptical 
um, of the need for it. But I wanted to at least introduce that um, complexity for you to respond to. Absolutely. And this is why the one rule that we are preserving, it relates to transparency, that I think that consumers, when they purchase a service, should have the right to know from the service provider, this is how we are providing the service and the terms on which we are providing it. And so they have to disclose that. Additionally, the Federal Trade Commission has authority over unfair and deceptive trade practices, as do state uh, attorneys general, for instance, and other authorities. And so those authorities still remain. If a company is not living up to what they say they're going to do, and they have to disclose that again under the FCC's framework, as I conceive it, uh, then they'll be accountable for that. And so that's the kind of thing that will empower consumers, I think, to understand what exactly it is that an ISP is doing in terms of a business practice. And there will be authorities still to take care of that problem. We've talked a lot on this uh, program over the last uh, several weeks, in particular, as there's been hearings on Capitol Hill dragging the social media companies up, and it's kind of tied up with the Russia investigation mm-hmm. and all of this. I think we have all um, at some point re- uh, uh, characterized this moment as a bit of a panic. It feels like that there is a there's a, a Capitol Hill kind of regulatory or just sort of like a existential panic about the power of social media companies and also about the way in which people are worried that Facebook in particular could be manipulated by hostile forces. You are in charge of your own agency or one of a you're an elevated member of the commission, and so you don't really work on uh, on you know generating or commenting on legislation. But just watching this, do you do you have a, a bad feeling in your gut about where this is going? Um, and if it went anywhere, if Diane Feinstein or anyone else was was going to write up some new kind of regulation, maybe on on uh, on uh, uh, political advertising on Facebook or some kind of transparency rules, is that going to fall on your lap? And are you worried about it? And, and do you feel like taking any sort of uh, preventive uh, shots across the bow? Uh, well, generally speaking, I don't take uh, preemptive shots across the bow at Congress. Know why. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> I um, but I do think that uh, it speaks to the transformative impact the Internet has had. I mean, this entire conversation would have been nonsensical to somebody 20 years ago that you would think the Internet was played such a large role in our lo- daily lives. And not just in terms of you know, ordering a coffee or reserving a, a table at a restaurant, as you said, even the core uh, functions of our electoral process. And this, the like. and, this conversation that we're having on a podcast that uh, people are listening to on their phone. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly right. In a subway. <laughs> and that's why I think there's been the impulse in some quarters. And we heard it last week, I believe it was, or maybe two weeks ago from uh, Senator Franken when he said that I, I think these net neutrality regulations should apply to Facebook. They should apply to Google. They should apply to Amazon, to all these other uh, online companies. And to me, at least, I think that's a dangerous road to cross. One of the things that's made the f- internet the greatest greatest free market innovation in history, I think, is the fact that policymakers of both parties decided in the 1990s, you know what, we're not going to treat this like the water company. We're not going to treat it like the electric electric company. We're not going to treat it like Ma Bell. We'll let it evolve and see where it goes. And where it's gone is incredible. I mean, trillions of dollars of value for consumers, uh, trillions of dollars of investment across the country that wouldn't have existed had we treated it like the subway system here in New York. And so uh, to me, at least, I want a level playing field for all of these online players, but I want it to be a light touch market-based playing field as opposed to the government knows best uh, playing field in which Online providers of all stripes have to come on bended knee to Washington and say, mother, may I, before we execute on our business plan? Interestingly, I think that's the that's the thing, though, when you describe, um, you know, water, power, uh, transportation in New York. I mean, the subway is the lifeblood of the city when it's not working. It's a problem, which is frequent. Um, But 
for most people, they think to this, well, no, actually, that's precisely how I want um, my internet service to work. I want it to be, you know, a price that I understand from, you know, this provider that I know with rules that are completely well known. Um, and in many cases, the expectation from an economic standpoint, they, they use this phrase natural monopoly, the expectation that there can only be one player eventually, that in order for competition to actually exist, it would be more expensive than having one player actually be dominant in this marketplace. There's an expectation that telecom services, which require this really expensive investment in infrastructure, would work, um, are, are in fact natural monopolies. And as a consequence of that, They've been regulated as such. So the the Ma Bell, um, the Ma Bell, uh, Ma Bell. Your reference to Ma Bell is something that some people might not um, appreciate straight away. But right. it's important to acknowledge that the reason there are so few providers in a lot of these places to begin with is a consequence of proactive, preemptive regulation right. that helped to create these telecom monopolies in the first place. It created the monopoly with Time Warner in this particular region of the country um, where they were the only broadband access provider for a time and in various other places where Verizon, for example, has come in to spend money to build their own network, to compete, to introduce another carrier. Um, the incumbent has been able to actually make it challenging for them by appealing to local officials, which I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, there's another um, another rule which we haven't talked about explicitly, but the there was a recent rule uh, about regional um, or local newspapers and television companies and yeah. the fact that one company could actually come in and own both of those things or all of those things, multiple televisions. And I think a lot of the concerns about Sinclair Media in particular, um, that this conservative news network already has a bunch of radio stations, already has some television stations and might be able to come into, say, Portsmouth some place in America and buy all of the things and control all of the communications. Um, and a lot of the upset has been that by removing rules that prevent people from doing that, we're creating a situation where they won't be able to get information from anyone except this one corporate entity. Right. I mean, how do you respond to that central concern um, about uh, creating the opportunity for monopolies to exist? And then the other sort of flip side of that, which is that in the past, the entities like the FCC and legislators have been instrumental in helping to create monopolies in the first place. So uh, on, the se on the second point, with regard to media ownership, as you pointed out last week, we got rid of some of the regulations that had been on the books since 1975. Uh, to me, uh, the concern is completely misplaced. Uh, when this rule was adopted, you had a newspaper perhaps or two in your local community. You had three uh, TV stations. And that was pretty much it. There was no cable news. Right. There was no internet. There was none of the rest of it. And so in 2017, the market media marketplace is dramatically different. And the only point I've said is, look, are, the media ownership regulations of 2017 should match the marketplace in 2017. And to suggest that a company that buys an AM radio station and a newspaper in Dubuque, Iowa, is somehow going to be this anti-competitive, anti-democratic monopolist brainwashing the citizenry, it just completely misunderstands the times in which we live. Sure. And so uh, I've simply said, look, if there's a pro-competitive combination, the FCC shouldn't stand athwart history absolutely saying, nope, we forever, forever prohibit it. We're not even going to take a look at it. All we have said is uh, we will allow some combinations of a radio station and a newspaper or a TV station and a newspaper. The other ownership limits will still 
I continue to apply, uh, but we don't we don't think it's our job anyway in 2017 to say, especially given the struggles in the newspaper industry. I mean, remember, in a lot of these cities, particularly in smaller and medium sized markets, there are no newspapers anymore. A lot of them have gone out of business. Same thing with TV stations and radio stations. They're really struggling. These are the folks that we want to create more local news. And the evidence in our order that we released last week shows that uh, if you look at some of the cross owned stations, that's a TV station that own, also owns a newspaper. Those cross owned stations produce a significant significantly more uh, amount of uh, local programming than do non-cross-owned stations. Mm -hmm. And so I understand the impulse we don't want, of, of course, you know, one company owning everything, but that's not what this is. This is simply allowing, opening the door uh, to radio stations and TV stations and newspaper stations doing what they do best, which is collecting local news and then distributing it on a number of different platforms in order to help the newspaper business and journalism generally just survive. One of the, uh, the great uh, misnomers about that, people, I think, um, who are are worried about this just kind of have an imagination of top-down kind of broadcasting or just people telling you what to think and this kind of stuff. But the lived-in reality, if you've ever worked at a newspaper, I worked at the LA Times back when uh, I think they uh, owned or maybe they still do uh, KTLA Channel 5 there. Um, try to get synergy in air quotes, between <laughs> the LA Times and a local TV news. Do you think the culture at a newspaper and the the helicopter chasing you know, local TV news are, you think those cultures are, are really sure, well? Like, sure. No, my God, they yeah. hate each other's guts, especially the newspaper tends to look down on the TV stations. Synergy fails every time. I mean, yeah. seriously, on every, the, the, the biggest, uh, uh, merger panic that I remember, maybe just because I wrote about it a lot in the time, was uh, in 2000. We forget this because it's like before 9/11 and before the right before the dot-com uh, bubble burst. Um, uh, AOL Time Warner. Oh yeah, I mean that was going to be it. Internet freedom is over, baby. Oh, uh, it's it's private Big Brother is coming afterwards. And I remember writing at the time, like, dude, really? Like, what do you consume from AOL and Time Warner? And how much how much of your life you watch CNN and you know you yeah maybe you have a, a couple of records off of uh, Electra Records or that's it's not a whole bunch it's not going and but the synergy media synergy almost never works and the, the flip side of that, uh, from the public sector's perspective, and I keep, an, as Sonny mentioned, A.L. Time Warner, I keep an article by my desk uh, to remind me of the fact that we need to have regulatory humility, that the government doesn't always know best. It's an article from the early 2000s which says that we must reject the AOL Time Warner merger because that combined entity will have an unbreakable monopoly <laughs> on instant messaging. And what a great threat that would be to consumers <laughs> and to the future of free speech. This is, I, I mean, the, the whole point is that marketplaces evolve, they find ways to innovate and to invest in ways that were inconceivable, perhaps in year zero or year one, but by year 10 seemed commonplace. And so we don't want the government to be preemptively taking business models or uh, off the table unless it has concrete evidence that there's a market failure here, that there's something that is so unbreakably or un unshakably broken that we have to take action. I think the Internet is anything but yeah, that. Yeah, this is another place, though, where your your boss um, has said some things. Just to be that, clear, we're an independent agency. I so understand. I, I got you. But, but in either case, yeah. like... Uh, uh, there's a presidential appointment there, yes? Right. Right, yes. okay. So in that respect, there's a relationship. Um, but he has said things that have led people to wonder if that is a standard that he shares, if that's a conviction that he shares. Because with the, we mentioned uh, Time Warner and there is the AT&T Time Warner deal now, which DOJ had recently raised some concerns about uh, because of CNN being in the portfolio. And there was this very specific suggestion that they jettison CNN if they actually wanted this uh, deal to go through or that they might be required to jettison CNN if that they want that deal to go through. Um, 
the fact is whether or not there's some sort of political motivation in the Department of Justice making a determination like that or suggesting that this could be an issue. Like, I don't know if there's any political motivation. I know that there can always be the appearance of such political motivations when you have a regulatory structure that's not only responsible for ensuring a certain level of um, competitiveness. It's almost always the case that if they're ensuring it by approving things, they're ensuring it by disapproving, disallowing things. Um, And you generally don't get one thing without the other. And whether it's the FCC or the FTC or the DOJ, like the regulatory, um, the regulatory incentive and the appearance of any sort of favoritism or disfavoritism for political reasons is something that is always present and it's difficult to escape. And I suspect that's for my own purposes why I generally prefer, whether it be privacy or more competitiveness in the marketplace solutions that are either market driven or consumer driven, i.e. you take responsibility for your privacy. You learn about things like VPN services. If you're genuinely concerned about uniquely concerned about the way that you're using the Internet in particular places at particular times um, and that you are making certain you're selecting providers that share your values and more providers mean you've got better odds of doing that. Right. I mean, it, part, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. no, no. After you. Well, and from an institutional perspective, I think the good point that you're making underscores the importance I think for people like me to have very clear upfront bright line rules you know we are going to make decisions based on the fact and the, the facts in the law uh, we are going to have to aspire to a level playing field because if it's an unlevel playing th- field then by definition almost the government is picking winners and losers in which concerns like that tend to intrude and so to me at least we want to be as far as as much as possible uh, the dispassionate umpire set mm-hmm. clear rules of the road that apply to everybody and then let the marketplace sort it out we don't want to be in the business of looking in a crowd of people and just picking out our friends, regardless of what the service is or what the product is. Uh, Sorry, Matt. No. I, I was just going to uh, to observe that I think that the the um, and this is true of, of local TV cross ownership rules as well, that the the recent standard has been waivers. It feels like on almost a most of these, either right. like, like a let the merger go through or a, a waiver in this case, like, hey, we're not going to uh, deal with it. So maybe part of what we're doing is just codifying uh, a, a better uh, reality, which is that we should uh, regulate, especially when anything having to do with newspapers, since any rule impeding the ability of people to own newspapers is a bad rule at, at, at this point uh, in our lives. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted you to uh, kind of chew on a, a bit of a paradox that I think that you live through and we all do in a way, which is that legally, I don't think uh, or jurisprudentially, we haven't been in a better moment for free speech that I can think of. The Supreme Court in particular is very strong on free speech cases. They just took another three or four this past week. I presume that most of them, I mean, they're now free speech is starting to go in and and take the First Amendment starting to crowd out other amendments mm-hmm. almost in the way that they're uh, 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 judging things. So we have this pretty great bedrock um, uh, happening. Culturally, it feels like we haven't been as backslid like this in a really long time. Again, with something we've talked a lot lot about. I know a couple of weeks before the president started talking about equal time and this kind of stuff on his uh, Twitter uh, feed, you you made some comments about just how the FCC is on the receiving end of a lot of complaints about the political content of speech. Like, hey, these people are are fake news. I think you framed the paradox pretty well. I mean, from a doctrinal perspective, at least, uh, the First Amendment is alive and well if you look at some of these court decisions. But the problem, as you pointed out, is that uh, there's a culture that is required to keep that promise of free speech alive. And especially if you look on college 
college campuses. It's from Evergreen State to Yale, uh, virtually every week, it seems like there's another case in which somebody who just doesn't want to hear a different point of view uh, wants to and does, in fact, shout it down. And I think that's pretty disturbing uh, for what it means for the future of free speech. And how does this affect your work? I mean, what? Oh, it affects I mean, I can tell you just about every day I get multiple emails saying, uh, you suck at your job because you're not taking this network off the air. Sometimes it's somebody who hates, say, Fox News. Sometimes it's somebody who hates MSNBC. Sometimes it's, you never you name it. Uh, I read this article in my local paper. How on earth can they broadcast? Uh, how can they, can they print something like this? And look, this, <laughs> I, that's sort of the core of what free speech is, uh, free press is all about. And so I know it's not going to make me popular probably among anybody, but I'm going to consistently say that so long as I have the privilege of occupying this position, my ally is going to be the First Amendment. I trust in the marketplace of ideas, and I don't want to be in the business of deciding who gets to speak and who gets to print and who gets to think and who gets to express. Uh, that's something for the American people to decide. For but don't, now, don't functionally you have to respond to at least some uh, like. Like if there's a, I don't know what the, the process, like a petition or look into oh, this sure, thing right. that happens. Like, like if someone says cockholster on television, like a late night television host. Yeah. So, so if there's, uh, say, a broadcast license renewal application, uh, so somebody can always file what's called a petition to deny. They'll say you should deny the renewal of this broadcast license for these reasons. And one of the reasons could theoretically be, you know, I didn't like the content of this broadcast uh, and the like. And that's the kind of thing the FCC traditionally has not uh, countenanced. It's one thing if they're actually violating a rule, uh, but if it's just simply they're broadcasting something you don't like, uh, you know, the political tint of a newscast or whatever, we don't get involved in that sort of thing. There's so, a, but there ahead. was there was the issue with Stephen Colbert earlier right. this year who had said some said some naughty things on television. Um, how does it work when the FCC is making a decision on whether or not to say fine uh, of someone who's on television, not a news person anymore, not even pretending to be a news person, but talking about politics, Still have saying upsetting, things right? that are obscene and right. perhaps in that context, disparaging the president. There is the appearance for a number of people and certainly the headlines that were written made it seem as though the administration was going after him. How does how does that process work? And is that something that we should be modifying as well? So those are the indecency and obscenity and profanity rules that the FCC has long had on the books. And right. uh, uh, so which, is, which is why you wouldn't let Eminem be. Is, is, <laughs> that was the complaint in the song. Right. You know what I'm talking about. FCC won't let me be. But you so, will yeah. permit Eminem to be and you won't screw around with him at this point. Uh, I, yeah, I, unless you get obscenity <laughs> complaints. Exactly. And that's actually the key. So if we get a complaint, uh, then we'll take a look at it and take the appropriate action based on those rules and some of the precedents that have been developed around those rules. But uh, uh, but otherwise, we aren't uh, regulating the content that goes over the airwaves. What's the standard for that? How does that work? Like what is what is obscene at this point for the from the FCC standpoint? So there are very well established uh, principles. And I can't remember the exact phrasing of the uh, uh, of it. But essentially, if it violates community standards, standards in right. terms of uh, the, what people consider to be decent or indecent speech, uh, that's the kind of thing the FCC will typically look at. And so that's if you remember the cases from the Super Bowl many years ago. Uh, the yeah, order of Janet Jackson's and the like, like and, several second nipple flash, right. which no one had ever seen an areola before. That would be, that's why it was so controversial. That would be problematic now because hashtag me too. I mean, that's a sexual assault. Was it? Of I her? Mean, it's, it's Justin, or, or, or Justin on you seeing it? Like, uh, uh, well, he seemed as shocked as everyone else. But that's that's what a man would do. He said he's a, a very gifted actor. Yeah. Justin Timberlake. He yeah, he has is. that talent. Well, it's all the Oscars, clearly. Uh, question Just for the record uh, for the listeners. I'm staying out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> he was winking at me. Uh, he was winking. Uh, yeah. It's a hostage video. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 
So agencies have a certain amount of power. Independent agencies are different than than departments in in, right. in, in, uh, in the administration, which is uh, the, the subtlety people don't always get. Um, at the same time, uh, actual deregulation, much of it has to come uh, originate from Congress, uh, as opposed to you sort of uh, skylarking and freelancing and figure out what needs to, to happen. So um, uh, given the limits on your uh, power or uh, authority, uh, given the current Congress or whatever, um, and also the speed of regulation, what I understand, if you have a great idea or if you're if the commission has a great idea for regulation, that's a three year process. That's uh, you're you're starting. You got to get the 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 you know requests for comments from people and you do all these kind of things. So imagine you've got three years left. Um, doing this. What are you doing in the next three years uh, that you have authority over? What's your kind of goal going forward? Uh, to me, uh, from day one, the, the top priority has always been to close what I call the digital divide, uh, the gap between those who have access to the internet and other advanced technologies and those who don't. And over the last nine months alone, I've driven, pers personally driven over 4,000 road miles across the country from Milwaukee to Wyoming, from the Navajo Nation in Arizona to uh, uh, parts of the south, uh, you know, southern Tennessee. And I see some of the gaps that are out there. And to me, at least, that's a lot of human capital that we're leaving on the shelf. Uh, one of the great promises of the Internet is not just the democratization of entrepreneurship, you know, allowing anyone to be a small businessman or businesswoman who can immediately reach a worldwide customer base. But it's also other, the, all the other things that the Internet empowers uh, from you know, better to healthcare through telemedicine, through distance learning opportunities, through precision agriculture to make farms more productive. And just the general sense of civic engagement, which is so much greater. There are parts of this country that simply don't get to enjoy any of those things. And I know it's never going to make the headlines because things like net neutrality occupy so much of the of the public's mind. But to me, this is the great charge that the FCC has to tackle over the next few years. To me, it's the 21st century analog to the rural electrification projects of the 30s and 40s. If we can get ubiquitous internet access out there, there's no telling what a future entrepreneur might be able to do, not necessarily from Silicon Valley or from mm -hmm. New York, but from Dubuque, Iowa, or a Indian Reservation in South Dakota, or you know, Santa Fe. I mean, th these are the kinds of places we want to empower with what I call digital opportunity. And uh, it, like I said, I'm, we're probably not going to get a lot of uh, yeah, yeah. credit for it, but that's what we're focused on. Well, I think it's it's the method, right? There's there's the stated purpose of a policy like the yeah. uh, the Lifeline. Um, is it Lifeline? Yeah, yeah the Lifeline program, right. which I know had made some headlines, and there were concern that you were going to get rid of this program and remove some of those subsidies. <laughs> yeah, and the subsidies are at least explicitly supposed to make it possible for more access to get to these folks. But your approach is greater competition, more service providers doing these things will ultimately lead to more access, lower cost. And that would mean better, faster service as opposed to subsidizing old DSL technologies that never improve and never create a real incentive for someone to come and build a new network here. Exactly. And redirecting those subsidies to where they're needed. I mean, sure. currently, It's always a question of whether or not the money you're spending on something is working. Oh, exactly. So, so I mean, currently we're spending a lot of money on uh, lifeline subsidies in urban areas like Tulsa, Oklahoma, right. tribal subsidies. To me, at least, I've been on rural tribal areas with no access at all. Those are the folks who are desperate for some kind of help for yeah. some facilities. Let's redirect the funding there. And secondly, as you said, let's promote more competition. In the last nine months alone, we've approved you know, a bunch of satellite applications for companies that want to provide a, a satellite-based competitor to the fixed uh, services mm -hmm, on mm -hmm, the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, we're getting into the dawn of 5G and the Internet of Things, allowing more wireless competition. So, you know, look, I understand that we, it goes slowly and we live in the day, so we don't see necessarily what's 
conference uh, coming tomorrow or the next month or next year. But just uh, trust us when I say that the FCC is really trying to promote as many innovative business plans as possible, and it will bear fruit in the time to come. Cool. Well, I know you've got to run to another media thing. Really glad you came and spent some time with us. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks, guys. You're great. I really enjoyed that conversation, Matt. I, I worry that it might have gotten a bit uh, technical at points for folks who don't understand. Um, hopefully, I am it folks was something who don't understand. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I, I came, I, I got like to, to the 90th percentile of understanding uh, the uh, the technical aspects of the uh, of the of the things in the uh -huh. places where the people yeah. and the connections. Right, like DSL. That's not getting any better. I understood yeah. that. It's it's not. Yeah, it's not getting any I don't know what DSL better. is. Yeah. What is DSL? I don't know what DSL stands for, but you it is a, a copper. You had a company. No, I had a company that did telecom service brokering. So we brokered DSL and T1s, all sorts stuff. of internet products. Understand. Well, I don't know what DSL stands for. I know okay. that DSL is an internet delivery service that is delivered over copper phone lines. Okay, so it is an older good. technology. What, uh, there are ways to make it somewhat faster, but generally speaking, it was trash. It was unreliable. And most people aren't using DSL. Most people for their broadband access are in, using in most major lines. cities. ID, no, ISDN? no, I ISDN, ISDN line is also over phone lines, okay. um, and it's generally used today for like uh, audio for radio stations. What people are generally using are fiber connections, like Verizon FiOS, which is sort of the the optical like fastest thing that one can get in most residential areas. Google is running these fiber things as well. Cable internet is the other option. Um, a lot of people are using cable services as well. Um, so. Is one inherently you, physically better? Is well, fiber cable, cable better? Cable is, cable is problematic because it actually gets backed up like traffic jams. If there are too many people on at a particular point in time, right, you'll actually notice a slowdown why, why and it's less Warner reliable. Right. Sucks in New York. The, the thing at this point is the fiber. It's the stuff that Verizon and Google have been spending tons and tons of money to actually lay out across the country. It is a lot more. It is a lot faster. It doesn't get bogged down um, to the extent there's capacity. It's brand new network cabling that's being laid down. The difficulty is that when Verizon shows up in an area where there's an incumbent, um, it's often hard for them to get permission to be able to run the, the cabling because a company like Time Warner, who's been there for a while, has a lot of political pull and can do things to make it difficult for them to actually roll these networks out. And I mean, you take the actual expense of rolling out that network plus the expense of fighting the incumbent for permission to be able to do this, and that can be a real Real challenge. Um, so that is a genuine obstacle to getting more of these services out there. It has less to do with, say, the FCC and a hell of a lot more to do with local city politics, municipal politics. Although the FCC, um, who, as far as I know, and we that's uh, the, the one uh, question that we kind of left off the table, which is like, why, why, why the fuck do we have an FCC to begin with? But uh, like yeah. one of the reasons that Should we have do. Should have asked that. Yeah, I know. That's all yeah. right. Uh, one of the reasons that we do is that it, it started off by dividing up then scarce spectrum. That was right. The, someone's got to be in charge of the spectrum, yeah. and they and still so do their spectrum auctions. Another thing, which I, I mean, that's what the the, the yeah. chairman has, has said. He's trying to increase satellite spectrum. So right. satellite is another way to get that thing happening. Totally. Yeah, right. and it's and it's a little it's a little less. I mean, it's obviously there are challenges. It, it's one of those things where there are severe limitations in terms of the upload speeds. The satellite obviously has to be in the right place, and you've got to have your dish pointed in the right direction. So there are more more moving parts 
parts there, if that makes sense, wirelessly. Like those little fake palm trees? Uh, something like that. I don't know what you're describing, but I imagine it's some sort of dish, right? P- fake palm I mean, tree. The, 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 the relay towers. I don't even know what we're talking about you, you, now. You, All right, bye. Bye. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.